Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number eight? Eight. Yes. Up to eight. We are up to eight, and we've been, we've been off for a little while, but we're back. That's right. So uh, some of the feedback that I've gotten on our previous podcast is that people don't know which one of us is Ken and which one of us is Donovan. So for the record, I'm Donovan, and... Uh, I'm I'm Ken. Does but that really we, we never mention who's who. We just say Donovan and Ken, and then we go straight into it. So, oh, it, yeah. I suppose you're right about that. Yeah. So, because we know who we are, of course, but they don't know who we are. Okay. All right. So today we're going to go over um, the the first two issues of Voyager that uh, Wildstorm Comics published. Uh, Wildstorm got the. Uh, Licensing rights for Star Trek uh, after Marvel. Um, uh, I guess they got them from Marvel in the 2000, around there. So uh, these are the first two Voyager ones. The first one's called False Colors, and the next one is Elite Forces, which is an adaptation of a video game. We'll get to that later. All right, so first off, Star Trek Voyager False Colors, uh, published January of 2000. All right, it starts off with Voyager arriving at a debris field uh, of a destroyed ship. In investigating the debris, they uh, beam aboard a sample. Uh, while investigating the fragment, the, cr- the crew deduces that it's, uh, the, cam- the damage was caused by a Borg attack. attack excuse me. Uh, Seven informs uh, Janeway that uh, she's getting some sort of transmission through her implants, but it is not like the normal Borg data link. Uh, while going uh, further, they uh, come across another debris field, and again uh, with evidence that the damage was caused by a Borg, and then they discovered that some of the damage is Borg itself. Borg damage. So uh, they decide to leave because they don't want to come across anything that's uh, powerful enough to destroy the Borg. Uh, when they get captured by uh, a huge uh, cylinder-shaped ship uh, in the tractor beam of this huge ship, uh, the ship is trying to force the shields down while keeping the ship whole, so the crew uh, estimate that they have about two hours until the shields drop and then they will be boarded by uh, the inhabitants of the ship. Uh, Seven theorizes that since the ship is using Borg technology that they'll be able to sneak aboard, uh, that the ship will uh, realize that they're allies. Uh, she wants the doctor to make her look more like a drone and uh, just get in a space suit and jump over since they can't use the transporters. All right, so Janeway agrees uh, with this and orders that Tuvok and Chakotay join her. Uh, The Doctor and Neelix create the costumes for them, and they're able to jump over without any problem. Uh, They use a Borg uh, open code to get into the ship. Uh, Once they're in there, they're confronted by two Borg drones. Seven accuses them of not being the true Borg and that they stole something. She threatens to assimilate them. Uh, then the droids just turn around and run away, and blast doors uh, slam down and, and, uh, and capture the, uh, the three uh, away team members. Uh, Seven tells Tuvok that, and Chicote that the drones are not Borg and that they have somehow stolen the Borg technology. Uh, she accesses a Borg uh, data panel and gets the history of the ship. So come to find out that a Borg cube was destroyed and these two aliens... 
uh, scavenged the the technology. Uh, then they're using the Borg uh, as disguises to intimidate other ships uh, that they capture and scavenge. Uh, what the scavengers don't know is that the Borg half of the ship is still alive and trying to contact the full collective. Uh, Seven uses her Borg nanoprobes to access the Borg uh, part of the ship to free Voyager from the tractor beam. Uh, Seven considers using the technology on the ship to create a new collective and assimilate the pirates. Uh, as they discuss this, they're attacked. Seven creates a force field uh, and threatens to assimilate the ship. Seven somehow infuses herself with the ship and starts jettisoning uh, the Borg parts off of the ship uh, so that uh, the scavengers won't have that technology anymore. Uh, Janeway's about to beam over the team uh, back to Enterprise uh, when they get attacked again. So Janeway's not, or Seven is not able to disengage. So Tuvox just uh, shoots the panel and they beam away. So once they're safely at warp, uh, it's established that Seven just had a little shock due to the violent disconnection. Uh, and she tells the crew that the living parts of the ship uh, were successful in contacting the Borg. And then we get a little shot of the pirates trying to. Uh, put the Borg parts back on their ship, and then a Borg cube shows up. Ba-da-da. The end. So I guess they get their come up. Exactly. Come so up um, overall, I really like this story. I like the uh, artwork, and I liked the uh, the story. I thought it was moved pretty well. Uh, the artwork is a little anime style, I think. Not quite uh, full blown anime, but it has yeah. that little cartoon feel, which uh, I like. It's it's a little cartoony, but then it still looks, I don't know, real, I guess is the <laughs> wrong word, but uh, I don't know. I, I just like it. Yeah, it, it, it's good. It's good artist, artistry. It's yes. good. And uh, Seven looks really good. She does. As she did in the series, as she does here. Uh, the, uh, the art is accurate. There aren't wacko things in there. You can tell the people that created this comic wrote it and penned it were people that knew uh, the franchise. Right. And actually, when you read the back of the comic, I mean, you know, they're basically introducing themselves and they're talking about how they love, grew up with uh, Star Trek and stuff. So they're fans writing this stuff. Right. As opposed to uh, professionals that really don't have any emotion with the uh, material. Yeah, I think I think towards the 80s and 90s and then now in the 2000s, uh, I think that the people writing the stories were obviously fans. I mean, we had... Peter David writing a whole bunch of the uh, Star Trek. Peter David and Michael J. Fran, uh, Gene, Michael Jan Friedman. Right. They wrote a lot of the DC stuff, and obviously they're experts on Star Trek. I mean, they've right. written tons of the novels. Uh, so I agree with you. Some of the earlier stuff, like Gold Key and stuff, they were basically just cranking out something to uh, get the little kids to buy it. So the the cover on this. Uh, there's, there was actually two covers to this. There was a photo cover, which just shows uh, Jerry Ryan as Seven of Nine. And then there was a, uh art cover, which is a, uh, a drawing of Seven of Nine in a different type of catsuit that she normally wears. It looks kind of like the Borg outfit she wears uh, in the series, or in the issue itself. Which one uh, do you prefer? Well, uh, naturally, the real one looks great. However, look at the proportions <laughs> on that uh, drawn seven. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, when I showed that to my wife uh, yesterday, or I guess it was the day before yesterday. But anyways, I showed it to her, and and uh, she looked at it, and she was like, uh, she actually said that she was shocked that the uh, the art cover 
Maid Seven even more endowed than she really is. <laughs> <laughs> and then she uh, made a she made a similar statement to that uh, that same day because we went to the comic book store and uh, there was a Power Girl uh, comic there and and uh, she she looks a lot like Seven does there. She's yeah. uh, very well endowed. Yes. Yeah, uh, there was an interview with Jerry Ryan that was saying where they were talking about her uh, her outfit mm. and how it took them a while to get the outfit just right and how the outfit uh, I didn't know precisely what she was referring to but she was basically saying the output the outfit made the impossible possible or something so mm. a lot of engineering went into the uh, seven of nine outfit. Interesting. Uh, and I'm not talking about the Borg, any kind of Borg kind of thing, just the, like, leotard kind of thing she normally right. wore. So I didn't know quite what she was talking about, but, you know, could there have been some padding involved? Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I always felt bad. Uh, or I never felt bad, but I never really liked that outfit. I just, I mean, obviously it was built just to do one thing, and then, and that was to uh, show off her uh, chest area. I mean, uh, her uh, fine shape in general. But, I mean, it was all one color, and it was kind of had that glittery look to it. Yeah. I, I never really cared for it. Yeah. I thought it was great. <laughs> the funny thing is is that the uh, the art cover was uh, done by Jim Lee. He uh, He's a big comic book uh, artist. He actually co-founded uh, Image Comics, and uh, Image Comics was like six comic book creators creating a, a brand new... Uh, 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 creator-owned comic book company so that Marvel didn't own the rights to this person, DC wouldn't own the rights to their characters, they would be able to hold the rights to their own characters. So Jim Lee was one of the six, and his imprint of the Image uh, franchise was Wildstorm. So Mm -hmm. then years later, uh, he actually sold his section to DC, which by the time this comic book came out, it was actually a a sub, sub, uh, what is it? A sub-brand of DC Comics. And I also noticed uh, for the first time Paramount Comics. Yeah, that actually started when Marvel took over the rights again from DC. Um, it was Marvel. It was Paramount Comics, Marvel Comics presents, and then they had they had the original series Star Trek. They had a next generation. They didn't really have a next generation or an original series. They called it Star Trek Unlimited, and it would just kind of bounce between the two franchises. Hmm. But there was a Voyager series, Deep Space Nine series, early Voyages series with Captain Pike, Starfleet Academy with Nog. Um, There might have been another one. They did, like, the first contact adaption. Oh, and the X-Men crossovers. (laughs) (laughs) i got to read that. But, uh, yeah, that, that was when the Paramount comics first started up. Interesting. All right, so let's just go into the the story itself. Um, uh, they're on page eight when Janeway, and unfortunately these aren't numbered, so it's kind of hard to go through. So I just mm. counted. So hopefully I'm not too far off. But when uh, on page eight, Janeway is like looking at the debris field, and she's like leaning over a console, like looking like a little kid. Uh, I thought that was a little odd picture for her. Oh yeah, I see that. So I see, she says. Yeah, she's looking, all hunched over. Looking like she's 12 years old or something. Yeah. So I figured this this issue came out during season six. So I'm assuming that it's probably supposed to be during season six of Voyager. Um, did you get that or did you think it was earlier or later? 
Um, I really don't know what, which season I associated with. Okay. But, I, I, I mean, the, Seven was there. Right. So you know it's into it a, a, a ways. And all the characters seem, you know, mature and kind of in their roles. So I figured it was uh, definitely not the beginning. Yeah. And it's interesting how they did that. I mean, they didn't start at the beginning. Is right. this, the first, this is the first issue? This is the first issue Wildstorm did, but yeah. it's not the first Voyager comic. The yeah. first Voyager what? comic was done by Marvel back when they still had the license. Okay. So then when Wildstorm took over, they Wildstorm didn't do like an ongoing series like the other ones did. They did a series of one-shots like these two and mm-hmm. some miniseries. They didn't ever have like a monthly ongoing. Well, you're a good job. do like it. I really do like it, too. What do you think about on page, uh, I guess it's page nine, the... The big ship, the cylinder-looking ship. ship that captures them. Uh, I thought it was. Um, I thought it's like they're going along, da 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 da. They're flying along, and then all of a sudden, they didn't see it. They're in a tractor beam. <laughs> it's a pretty and, big ship. And the next is. picture, yeah, this ship is like like thirty times the size of Voyager, yeah. and it's like, and they got it so close. I mean, they've had drawn. I mean, there's only so much space you have in a panel, but they got Voyager so close to the damn thing, and it's like. Gosh, we never saw it coming. Look at the size of the... Well, it, it does look they, like a big piece of junk, so maybe they well, just skip by it. I don't know. I mean, look, yeah. I mean you, you can see the warp nacelles are on. I yeah. mean, the, the, the lights are on. That's true. I didn't think about that when I first read it. What I kept thinking was is that... I kept thinking that it looked a lot like... Uh, it looked a lot like the, the probe from Star Trek Four, just with a bunch of little board pit bits added to it. So I was wondering mm-hmm. if... Uh, Maybe this could have been the probe, you know, at first, before I read that there oh, was okay. aliens okay. inside. Yeah. But uh, when I looked at it, I was like, oh, that's cool. This is going to be maybe the probe because, you know, I always wondered where that probe went to after it talked to the humpback whales and, and went, left. went on its way. Because, I mean, that was like 90 <laughs> years before this story took place. So it yeah. could have made it all the way to the Delta Quadrant in 90 years. Maybe. Maybe. So uh, I don't have anything until we actually get to the... Uh, Costuming of them? Do you have anything prior to that? Costuming? Well, when they become Borg. oh, when they get dressed up as Borg. Gotcha. Uh, no, no. So my question is, and this is true with every franchise of Star Trek, why is the Doctor always the one that has to put the makeup on? <laughs> I mean, Bones they, did that before. Yeah, didn't they it? had to have uh, McCoy had to put the the. The Romulan ears on on Kirk. Uh, on Kirk during when they were stealing the cloak and Crusher always the had the Enterprise incident. Yeah, that's it. Yes, and then uh, Crusher was always you know I say gluing, but I mean that's you know it was just them with a forehead or them with the ears. But I know that supposedly they're changing their DNA and all that other good stuff. But here I don't think they're changing their DNA. They're just really just, just pasting on. on board pieces, yeah. especially when they start taking it off later. Yeah. Um, so I always thought it was funny. Why does the doctor always have to do that? I mean, it's just uh, just funny. I do like the the board like, like they have her here, where she has hair still, and Chakotay still has hair. So they're not yeah, all which, slimy like the the board normally. At first, are. when I was first looking through this uh, comic and seeing that Seven still had hair, I thought, well, what what an. I, mean, I think we commented to each other, didn't we? I thought it was kind of odd that 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 Seven still had hair, but now that I know it's fake, well, it makes more sense. Right, because when we were just browsing through it, we thought it was a flashback of some sort, or that she somehow got reassimilated. But yeah, when reading it, we. But I, I like that look. I think she looks good with the slick black, kind of like Yar's haircut. Mm-hmm. Where it's kind of slicked back, and then she has that uh, the big Borg eyepiece on. Yeah. I thought it was pretty cool. All right, so uh, here on page 17, once the 
once they're aboard the Borg ship, uh, you get a bridge shot where uh, some some brown-haired, red-headed kid who's taking Tuvok's spot is basically saying, I don't trust him. I don't trust Seven. She's been reassimilated or whatever. And I made a little note. I was like, who's this kid? And doesn't he know that when you take somebody's place on the bridge, you're just supposed to stand there for the wide shots <laughs> and never talk? <laughs> Obviously, didn't see enough episodes. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't uh, get the memo, I guess. Speak when spoken to. Exactly. So, uh, what else you got? Um, not too much. I mean, it, it, in the end, when they figure out, oh, they're not, you know, they're they're just pirates masquerading as Borg. Um, it's just a uh, a contest of wills. Move, counter move. And obviously, they did not count on Seven's incredible ability to use Borg technology and become one. Yeah. Now, in the in the show, I can't remember, but she did have the little Borg tubes that came out of her hand every once in a while. I'm assuming, but I can't remember her actually being I able don't to that control. Very often. Con, she's not able to control the nanites that come out, is she? I don't know. I don't remember seems her like doing she puts them into the ship, well, I, and then she's able to start controlling. Do you remember her actually interfacing with a Borg uh, ship before, or Borg technology like that, with the little tubes coming out? I don't know. But I do kind of remember her having it in one episode, and I can't tell you what the episode is. But when I saw it, I was like, okay, I do kind of remember her being able to do that one time. But I can't remember why she did it then, and I definitely don't remember her being able to just plug in like R2-D2 and start controlling yeah. stuff. I, I thought they, like, removed... Not everything, but close to everything of the Borg stuff from her. Yeah. So like the nano her, probes? Uh, yeah, I don't remember her doing that many things technologically interfacing with Borg stuff. Uh, here on page 25, she makes a comment that she's the most intact Borg around. So that kind of solidified the thought that this was going to be in uh, season six. Because towards the end of season six is when they get those other bored kids aboard the ship. Mm. So it must must happen sometime between then, I'm assuming. Assuming they're paying that much, cl- that close attention to continuity. You would think they would. <laughs> <laughs> I always that, 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 you know, that, that, that borders on one of the, like, convention questions <laughs> that they get and they roll their eyes going, oh, it's only a movie. Only a TV That's show. true. That's true. I wasn't a big fan when they just started ripping off the the board, like wetsuit type thing, and they had their full uniform underneath. Oh yeah, exactly. Because I was like, those Borg fits look, those Borg outfits already look pretty skin tight. Exactly. And then you're gonna have your other clothes right underneath. All right, so it's you, like it's like when Iron Man gets all the Iron Man pieces off of him. He's in his tux in Iron Man yeah, Two in the preview. In the preview, yeah. Or that he can carry around his full costume in a in a suitcase, like he does. Uh, well, I'm, I'm looking forward to that because I because I, I still I don't know where it came from. Well, All saying, I know is he's got that big old thing. Oh, yeah, comic yeah, books. yeah. In the comic books, okay, he comics. could get it out of like a suitcase. No, I saw the trailer, the one that you're talking about. It just came out, and uh, it, it looks good. It looks like it's bigger than just a suitcase. Exactly. And, and the it looks like something you have to grab out of the trunk. Yeah, and the something. armor looks less than what he lighter has. Right. Yeah, like lightweight. Yeah. Light, lightweight armor. No, I totally see it. I, I'm just making fun of because you know comic books are notorious for, you know. Uh, Flash can carry around his, his whole costume in his little ring. Yeah. So, uh, so we were talking about the the uh, coloring and the artwork being really good in these. On page thirty seven, which is almost towards the end, 
uh, Janeway turns to uh, Mr. Kim and tells him to um, uh, leave whenever he's ready. But uh, the the guy's wearing a uh, red uniform, so it's like it should be yellow, right? Command gold. Yeah, right. So uh, that was the only the only little nuance Bit of that inconsistency. I, uh, in continuity, right? Yeah. So here on page thirty-seven, in the bottom right-hand, right, bottom right-hand corner, she says, "Understood. Whenever you're ready, Mister Kim." And she's looking over at this guy where Kim normally stands, but he's wearing, uh, wearing a red red Good uniform. point. Good so, point. But no, that's really great. I mean, aside from that one uh, bit, it's good. There's a one other thing I want to mention when it shows the when it really shows a flashback of uh, Seven of Nine on the second to last page. Uh, in her Borg outfit, her mm-hmm. true Borg outfit, she looks pretty good right there. Oh yeah, yeah, the yeah, the blues. Yeah. No, I'm talking about this right here, where oh, that. where she's actually remembering what she looked like when she was yeah, with true the bald head Borg. and everything. Yeah, no, I don't know. I kind of like in these other shots. Personally, I know but. You do. <laughs> but I mean, when you yeah, look, yeah, yeah, you yeah. look at that, she's definitely female, right? Yeah. Which which uh, there was a, a recent book. Well, it's not recent anymore. But Peter David wrote a book called Before Dishonor, and it was about. Seven of Nine, mm-hmm. and uh, in it, she uh, somebody makes the comment that there's no female Borg, which oh, obviously yeah, right, anybody right, right. who watched Star Trek knows there are. And uh, so, I mean, you look at this picture of her as a Borg, and you're like, that, that's you don't think that's female? Anyways, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think even in uh, in Next Gen, they showed uh, female Borgs. I can't remember in. The, I think in first contact there was a few, yeah, because they were assimilating the the the, hum, the people right away. But I think in the old show they were all male, weren't they? Usually, back when they if once you killed them they turned into ash, they stopped doing that after a while, didn't they? Yeah, when you removed they went remove components from each other. Oh, that's other, right. Then they they went, went. They'd, they'd they pull went. that little glowing green thing, and then they would just like dissolve. Um, the last thing I have, and again has nothing to do with this comic, uh, but the idea of the board technology being alive and being able to have some sort of consciousness and trying to connect with the other Borg. Uh, that that book that I was talking about before Dishonor, it also has to do with that. It has to do with a, a Borg cube that's been abandoned in the Alpha Quadrant, and it's there's no Borg aboard, but it starts uh, you know, taking it upon itself to create a new collective and create a new queen and things like that. So I thought it was kind of cool. I don't remember it ever being in the shows that the technology itself was alive, but obviously in this comic book it is, and then they bring it back in that other book. So I like it when things uh, flow, that there's an actual continuity of things. So that's it I have for that one. We get to uh, the last page shows the uh, cover art again and the photo art for the cover. All right, so uh, you want to go ahead and get us started on Elite Forces? Okay, so our second comic book for the day is Elite Force, which, of course, is um, inspired from the game of the same uh, name, which is a game that I thoroughly enjoyed, both the first one and the second one. Yeah, I didn't even know there was a second one until you told me a few podcasts back. Um, I played it on the PlayStation 2. The PlayStation 2 only had the first one, but... Uh, I played on the PC, and uh, they had a second one. So that was Elite Force Force 2. Right. And or Elite Forces 2. Yeah, and it was based after Voyager makes it back home, and uh, and then I guess this, uh, this elite group that we'll talk about here in a second moves off to other ships, including the Enterprise. Enterprise. Which I think is uh, the main story in the, in the, in the second, second game. Yeah. Yep. So oh, that's pretty uh, cool. So I might have, have to, to on that one. might have to track down that game. Well, you can borrow the disc if you want. 
and install it in the PC. And hopefully it still works with uh, more recent operating systems. Yeah, it's only 10 years old. Yeah. Things change, man. <laughs> I know. Things change. Okay, moving on, let's go into the story. The story begins where uh, you see an action-packed battle, where you see the elite force, which of course is a group of uh, special security folks, which have special uh, uniforms, special equipment, and special training, of course, to make them bad badasses that can go in and kick butt on the board. At least that's what they're supposed to do. Anyway, highly trained um, individuals. And you see the uh, elite force group on a Borg cube with Borgs all around them looking like they're about to get their, uh, their butts kicked. So uh, the one alien member of the team is on the ground, apparently uh, damaged. Um, and we see uh, the commander of the elite forces team uh, giving orders, and we see Beesman, at least I think that's how you pronounce it, uh, who is the biggest, uh, surliest of the lot, who is just two phasers in each hand, and he's just blasting away. Anyway, so uh, not, not too far into this, I kind of thought, you know, this might be like one of those simulation things, because these guys look like these guys, they're going to die. But anyway, so uh, eventually they start falling individually until there's only three of them left as Borgs grab them. And indeed, when they're about to um, be destroyed, we see that um, the lieutenant comes in, uh, who apparently is the uh, uh, main officer in charge of the group, who comes in firing an, uh, an IMOD, which is really cool. Uh, in the game, too, when you, uh, you weren't very effective until you had the IMOD. So he comes in, blasts in uh, all the aliens. But then he himself gets grabbed away. And it all looks like uh, things are, all is lost. And even the uh, lieutenant comes back looking like a Borg. And all the members of the uh, team that were grabbed come back looking as Borgs. And unfortunately, the, the uh, last, uh, the commander of the group uh, was not able to fire upon them. Because they're his team and he couldn't do it. So then that, at that point when he fails, apparently is when you see that it was indeed just a, a training exercise, and they were inside of a holodeck the whole time. And then the big deal is made that basically uh, you failed, pal, because unfortunately you did, not, um, you did not fire when you had to. So it is uh, Lieutenant Forrester, who is the, uh, the head honcho uh, of the group, but it actually is... Well, he's the second in command. No, no, no. Uh, no, no, no. Lieutenant, is the, yeah, Lieutenant right. Forrester oh. is, is, the, is like the... Uh, is the guy that doesn't go into the field usually, but he is like the, uh, the, the commander of them as they get uh, deployed. And, of course, Tuvok is above uh, Lieutenant Forrester. Right. So, uh, and, of course, Mr. Monroe is the uh, tactical uh, leader of the group, uh, which, of course, all the original characters from the game, right. which is pretty cool. So, so he, uh, Monroe has a bit of dishonor, and he uh, moves on um, with this hanging over his head. Trying to do better next time. And, of course, Tubac, uh, in the debriefing session, uh, basically tells them how they uh, screwed up and how they got to work harder. And, uh, basically, if you you got to shoot your own people, you got to shoot your own people. Um, there's a few jokes being uh, done by, by the uh, beesmen uh, during the meeting room. And uh, I basically do not like the guy almost immediately. But whatever. So... You're getting introduced to all the characters, and uh, 
naturally what happens almost immediately, because this is a fast-paced uh, comic, although a very large comic, as you had uh, mentioned, uh, offline. How many pages are these? Uh, I think they're like 45 or so. 45 Not pages. quite 50. 45, 50 pages. Yeah, these so, are the prestige format. I like it. I like yeah. it. A lot of good meat here. So, but keep things moving along. They are, they are long comics. Uh, almost immediately, we get thrust into a real situation that is... Uh, threatening Voyager that will, that will require the elite force to go into action. So indeed, the uh, uh, Voyager is under attack and uh, they need to go ahead and deploy the elite forces to, uh, to take care of the situation. So, um, okay, so when they, uh, so Voyager is under attack but actually sucked into uh, some kind of an alternate uh, pocket of space, alternate bubble of uh, a dimension or some kind of situation where they're surrounded by a lot of other ships, uh, in many cases uh, derelicts that have been apparently stripped clean of technology. And indeed, not long after they're inside of this, uh, this graveyard of ships, they're attacked by uh, a Borg ship. They're attacked and boarded, but instead of uh, taking the crew uh, and uh, all those sort of things, they're taking parts from Voyager, uh, critical parts uh, for Voyager's defense, etc., etc. So uh, they beam back out. While these guys are, while the Borg are trying to take all of these parts, the of course the elite force is deployed to try to fight them, uh, and they do uh, fight them to some degree. But then uh, after they get the parts they need, they get ready to leave and they kidnap uh, Lieutenant Forster, and then they uh, they take off with all the parts. So then uh, the Voyager crew assesses their situation, finds out that critical components have been uh, stolen by the Borg, uh, and then they also uh, are trying to interrogate one of the Borgs that were captured in the, uh, in the raid. So they're going ahead and um, interrogating the uh, Borg prisoner and finding out more and more about the situation they're in, and they come to find out that they're in, in an area that's referred to as the Forge, and within it they find out that uh, these ships are being uh, stripped for uh, parts by a thing called the Harvester, a ship that comes out and grabs all of their technology and takes it back uh, for some unknown purpose. So they finally come to the uh, conclusion that they're going to have to get back to the uh, Borg ship, board it, and take back their technology. So that is the plan. And this time they're going to bring uh, Seven with them because, of course, she is the one that knows the most uh, about the Borg and their ships, etc., etc., and she looks uh, quite fetching in her Elite Forces outfit. I must say, that's See, the plan. She looks good when she's not in a, a unicolored leotard. She looks good in this uniform. Oh yeah, I, you know, I would venture to say she looks good in just about anything. Okay, so they uh, go and they find the uh, Borg uh, ship. They beam the Elite Forces plus uh, seven on board. And they are armed to the teeth with their iMods, which, of course, uh, an iMod is a uh, special uh, weapon, special uh, phaser rifle, which uh, automatically is set to rotate their firing frequencies and blah, blah, blah to be particularly effective against the Borg. Yeah, uh, in the game, don't they actually refer to it that means infinite modification or infinite in, in, iMod? In, in infinite diversity? No, 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 no. That it was the some I sort mind. of infinite frequency instead of it's just right. like the normal phaser rifles. Oh, yeah. So par- particularly effective and uh, pretty big bad butt guns. 
Yeah. Big old mole on the front of it. Yeah, they're pretty cool. Uh, of course, Beesman is making some comments, trying to make some time with Seven, which she'll have none, none of. As they're moving along, trying to find uh, their components, they, of course, find themselves uh, confronted by Borg. Uh, there are fights while they go ahead and try to uh, break up into two teams and uh, accomplish their mission. Okay, so the two teams are in uh, different parts of the ship. Of course, uh, as they're uh, being confronted by different Borg, they are eventually confronted by Lieutenant Foster himself, who has been turned into, naturally, a Borg. Monroe is confronted by a situation where he should be uh, killing one of his own uh, team, who has become the Borg, but in this case, it's the real thing. So the last of the components are are in their hands. They're confronted by uh, Foster, who is now a Borg, and again, Monroe does not fire. Uh, At that moment... The Elite Forces team are beamed away back to Voyager now that they've got all the components. And again, Monroe is faced with the fact that he did not fire uh, on one of his ex-members. So again, he's being called onto the carpet uh, for not doing what at least they think he should be doing. Uh, it's making the tough call, killing ex-members of the Elite Forces. Okay, so now that they're uh, back, now that they have their components, they can get Voyager back uh, into working order and be an effective vessel again uh, next time they're attacked. So now that the Voyager is almost back to normal <clears throat> with emergency um, repairs going on, the uh, Harvester vessel is coming closer and closer to it. But this time, rather than having a, uh, a disabled ship, <clears throat> Voyager is able to fire back and fight. So it shoots uh, the uh, Harvester uh, multiple times when it comes close enough, and then for whatever reason, rather than trying to fight on uh, Voyager, uh, the Harvester goes ahead and starts turning tail and running back to its home base. At least they assume it's going back to its home base, which is the Forge. Um, so Voyager begins following it, uh, but when Voyager uh, can't keep up with it in its uh, half-repaired state, they decide to beam over the Elite Forces squad for them to be able to ride on the ship as Voyager continues to uh, follow it. So they're hoping they can, um, they can take over the ship or at least ride it until it gets all the way back to uh, the source, uh, uh, the forge, uh, where uh, all of these attacks came from. And hopefully the clue to get out of this, uh, this pocket of space and get back into normal space again. So uh, while aboard the uh, Harvester ship, they did find uh, that they uh, came into contact with some of the uh, aliens that are behind the ship, and it turns out that they are some kind of big bug-like creatures, not totally unlike the creatures in the uh, Starship Troopers, Mm. I thought. I didn't think about that, but yeah, you're right. Uh, Although they're not, I mean, they're not quite as big, I mean, because that movie, the, the, the bugs were huge. But in this one, they're they're good size, you know. They're they're about this. They're they're bigger than a man, um, and they're pretty nasty with uh, sharp claws and stuff like that. So they they do have to fight on on the on the uh, harvester ship. But eventually, the ship comes upon a much much bigger ship that looks like it's being uh, it's under construction, and it turns out to be indeed the forge. So the source of uh, of the folks that are had uh, a have snared all of these uh, other ships and stripped them for their uh, resources. Okay, so the uh, ship ends, the harvester ship ends up uh, getting uh, funneled in uh, via their, uh, the harvester's, uh, rather the uh, forge's tractor beams, 
and they are actually now inside of the uh, forged ship, which is huge. They get out of the ship and um, start looking around on the forge uh, station itself. Okay, on the forge ship, they go ahead and are looking around the ship trying to find ways to uh, get the power down and also find a way out. And uh, unfortunately, we find that uh, Mr. Big Mouth Beesman, when they uh, come into some kind of a hatchery area where they have these uh, large, nasty-looking aliens inside these big, huge, um, like, breeding chambers, he decides he's going to go ahead and uh, blast one of the chambers and indeed uh, spill a whole bunch of liquid and uh, one of the creatures comes out. Uh, Unfortunately, Beesman thinks uh, it must be uh, dead or uh, in some way uh, asleep, which is unfortunately not the case because this particular uh, alien creature, which we haven't seen this particular variety yet, turns out to be very big, very nasty, and very pissed. So using his right clawed hand, he goes ahead and uh, spears a beesman from the back and uh, basically kills him. So we have our first true uh, casualty from the team, and it is uh, beesman, if you don't count uh, Forster being taken over by the board. Uh, Anyway, so it's a firefight. And they're firing away, and unfortunately more and more of these nasty uh, battle creatures come out of their, uh, their chambers, and it looks like they're going to get cooked back up against the wall. Then, just in time, uh, we have Tuvok beaming in with a uh, security uh, team, and they go ahead and start blasting them and ev- eventually clear out those particular aliens from the room they're in. So Tuvok to save the day. So now that uh, Tuvok's in the picture uh, and reinforcements... The, uh, they decide to split up into two different teams because, of course, you always want to split up when you're inside of an alien ship. You do more damage that way. So they uh, split up, and they, they head out for their objective, and one of the two teams, Monroe's team that he's leading uh, with Seven, end up coming uh, in contact with Tarlis, who appears to be the big bad leader of the Forge, and he's able to uh, inflict quite, uh, quite a lot of pain on, uh, on Monroe and his team. So um, Monroe and his team uh, is facing uh, Tarlis, and in great evildoer style, Tarlis, uh, who thinks he can easily defeat these, uh, these three Elite Force folks, are, uh, discloses his plans, which always happens, whether it be Dr. No or whomever, goes ahead and dis- discloses that the Forge is his little... Uh, pocket of end space where he is building up his forces and then he will exit it when they're strong enough and take over the galaxy, take over normal space. Monroe finally comes to the conclusion that there's nothing they can do about this other than try to take this guy down. So they start firing on Tarlis now that they know what his real uh, objectives are. Unfortunately, Tarlis is a pretty nasty uh, guy himself with plenty of uh, beams coming out of his head and stuff. Uh, so just when it looks like, again, Monroe and the team uh, are going to go down, cue the heroic uh, music and um, the Borg come into the picture, apparently led by uh, Lieutenant Forster, who, of course, is still Borg, but they realize that they need to uh, fight against uh, Tarlis and company uh, with the uh, humans. With all the uh, firepower of both the Elite Force team and the Borg, they're able to take down Tarlis and uh, start to uh, destroy the, the forge itself. And then uh, Voyager is able to uh, break free into normal space again. 
assuming also that the uh, Borg were able to do the same thing. Okay, so they're back in a normal space, able to continue their, their journey back home. And, of course, uh, they all um, mention the fact that what was perceived as Monroe's bad judgment in not taking down For- Forster, both in the simulator and in real life, when they found out he was a Borg, turned out to be the best decision that, that Monroe could have made. Because in the end, without uh, Forsters and the Borg's help, uh, they could not possibly have taken Tarlis down. So, in the end, Monroe is vindicated and becomes the official leader of the elite force. And that is the end of the story. It's a long story. It's a good story. Lots of action. But it, it took a li- long time for me to ineptly tell it. So, there we go. Right. So, uh, as quickly paced this this game, this book was they cut out so much that was in the game i mean the game oh, yeah. was well, a really long game which i thought was good because you got your money's worth you're oh, yeah. sitting there playing it for a long time there was there was a lot of different boards and a lot of different aliens that aren't in this game mm-hmm. or in this book because i mean there was like flying forge monsters there was the the big bugs there was a there was a good variety of um of uh things to shoot at right and another thing that they didn't bring over from the game that I was a little disappointed in was the uh, pattern buffer belt that they all wear. I mean, oh, yeah. They're wearing like this like holster-looking thing, like from something from a old detective-type uh, gumshoe-type show where they have the the holster the under the armpit holster, oh, but it's like this little. Yeah. But it's supposed to be a pattern buffer that's holding in all their weapons, and as they need them in the game, they would uh, you know beam in whatever gun they don't want and then whatever gun they do want would materialize in their hand, which I thought was a really cool idea yeah, in the game, but it, they didn't even talk about it here. In, the- yeah, in most shooter games, whether it be Doom, Quake, uh, Halo, they just seem to have all these weapons, because you pick them up along the way, right? and, they, and the games are first-person sh- first shooter games. You never see yourself, so it's like they never really bother even explaining how you could have all these weapons with you and pull it out at any time. Nobody really worries about it. This is one of the first first-person shooter games that I saw even attempt to try to uh, make any sense of the fact that you've got all these weapons with you whenever and, you need and, them. And I thought it was brilliant. I, I loved when that happened in the game. I was like, well, that makes complete sense. So, <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. Well, okay. If you get, if you get past the uh, – if you're able to go with the suspended disbelief – that this piece it. of equipment could somehow uh, have equipment go into some kind of uh, parallel pocket of, of uh, no, just... dimension that that can just pull it back in again. Once you get past no. that, I agree. The whatever it is is being dematerialized by the transporter, and then oh, it's you think just, it's, tra- it's, it's just transporter being, technology? Yeah, it's is just, that, yeah, I, that's not it's what just I got being out of it. held. In the pattern buffer that's oh, for that belt. I, that's not what I got out of it. But I I mean, if they, they did that, say, in the, they say it, that in the game. Okay, well, that's cool. Which I mean, I mean it, it, if Scotty, Scotty, exactly, <laughs> in relics. Yeah, if he could put himself in a pattern buffer for a hundred years, I mean, why can't you put your phaser in a pattern buffer uh, while you're using your big gigantic? I just didn't bazooka. remember them saying it was that, but that would make more sense. I'm pretty sure they did, but uh, they might. Uh, have. Who knows? I'll have to go back and load the darn thing. Yeah, because I've been, I, I, I wanted to play it, but. Who has the time? Yeah, I meant to play it before we did this podcast, but I never had a chance. I, I did open it up and read the little instruction booklet, and all the same guys were in it. So that was about yeah. as far as I got. <laughs> um, another good thing about Wildstorm is there's lots of great extra art they put in here. I mean, yeah, they, the little... There's all kinds of pinups and stuff. There's like one, two, three, four, five, 
six, six-ish uh, stuff. I mean, they, it's really cool artwork. Right, yeah, this was their prestige format book, which was, uh, you know, like I said, about a 50-page book with no ads, no advertisements at all. Yeah. And uh, the paper is like this really nice glossy paper, so yeah. uh, it's actually something that you could like put in your little in your bookshelf and they would uh, all line up because they all have a square spine instead of oh. uh, the staple spine. So, oh, cool. yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, I will say this one, though. Is that supposed to be Tarlis? They're they're on the second to last page, right? So so there's a picture of an alien looking guy with his eyes almost closed, I guess, looking kind of skinny and stuff. Yeah, he looks like a little bit like a Egyptian type look, like a mummy the, kind of thing. Yeah, or something. looks really I mean cool. I mean it's good, great artwork. Yeah, I think maybe this was kind of like some uh, you know rough draft on what things would look like in the right. comic. Right. Uh, I, I like the battle alien. The, the last one? Yeah, I mean, he's pretty nasty looking. Yeah. He looked a lot like uh, the tyrant from uh, the Resident Evil games. Yeah. I, I thought this, this story in the, in the video game itself borrowed a lot from other uh, video games and movie franchises. Because, I mean, that, that, uh, that, that gentleman that you don't like, uh, Baronsky or whatever his name is. Beesman. Beesman, yeah. He was a lot like... Uh, the Hudson character from Aliens. A lot of his little one-liners are are almost the same. And then uh, you know, fighting the, you know, fighting aliens and bugs and stuff. It's a lot like you know the Resident Evil games and things like that. Yeah. Which is not a bad thing. No. So just uh, real quick, uh, this is, to my knowledge, the only time a video game has been ported over into a comic book. But uh, I thought I would just take a second to kind of talk about other games and things that were ported over into uh, novels or or uh, novels that were ported into comics. So there was a game called Starfleet Academy, Borg, and Klingon. Those are three different games that were all adapted into um, novels by pocketbooks. Mm. Uh, and then this is, like I said, the only game that I know of, which was Elite Forces, that was then ported over into, into uh, comics. And then uh, I just made a little note that William Shatner, he wrote the, his first novel uh, in the Star Trek universe, mm-hmm. Ashes of Eden, uh, was actually adapted into a uh, comic book as well. Oh, didn't know that. Yeah, so, and I think that's the only novel that was adapted. But what I wanted to kind of talk about was uh, there was an issue of the old Gold Key comic book series called uh, Museum at the End of Time. And in that in that issue, uh, the Enterprise is pulled into another piece, a region of space where there's all these derelict ships. Oh. Sound familiar? Yes. And uh, there there's no way they can get out by themselves. But there's also a Klingon ship that's uh, stranded there as well. So both the Enterprise and the Klingon ship have to work together in order to get out get of this out. dead space. Which. To my knowledge, this is the only time this has ever happened, that comic book from Gold Key was adapted into a TV show. Uh, there was an episode of the animated series called The Time Trap, which came out a year or two later. Huh. And it was almost exactly the same story. Huh. So uh, I just make, one, it's very similar to this story, that you know, without the Borg's help, they could not get out. Right. Just like in these two stories, they couldn't get out without the Klingons. Right. So... It kind of worked on two two parts. One, it was very similar to this story, and also it was another uh, example of, or the only example of a comic book story being adapted into a TV show episode. Hmm. So, I thought it was cool. A lot of reuse in the Star Trek universe. Yeah. 
So, uh, anyways, what do you think of the? Uh, I like the artwork in this. Again, a little cartoony, but not not too much. Uh, I mean, and when I say cartoony, just uh, you know, their faces and stuff are just a little over exaggerated, which yeah. which I like. Yeah, especially that Monroe picture. Yeah, I don't know what page. Actually, it a couple is. of them. Yeah, uh, when they're doing the towards the end of the simulator sequence. Yeah, well, right when it says in 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 simulation. Exactly, yeah. the uh, Monroe's mouth with clenched teeth. It almost looks so big. It's like one of those uh, manga comics. Oh yeah, a little bit. So uh, he gets chastised for not killing his crewmen that are become Borg. Right. Why, why do they do that in Star Trek, that as soon as you become a Borg, you need to get killed? I mean, it's, that, you know, it's, it's, Borg are very analogous to zombies, right? Yep. So once you get bit by a zombie, you'll become a zombie, and then you have to get killed. So, uh, <laughs> but we know that it's possible to make you un-Borg, as happened with Picard and Seven. And those children at the end of uh, Season 6. There uh, you go. What is his name? Uh, Ecop or something like that. I can't remember what the boy's name is. I don't know. I um, but then also in, in some of the novels and stuff, they've they've unboarded people before. Yeah. You know, so to various uh, degrees of success. But I just think it's funny. You have cases that everybody knows that you can become unboarded, and yet the first thing you're supposed to do if you become bored is kill him. Kill him. <laughs> um. I made a comment earlier, I think you talked about it, about how these this elite force is a lot like the Makos from uh, Star Trek Enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the first thing I thought when I uh, when they brought the Makos on in Enterprise. Uh, this 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 is at least seems partially inspired by uh, elite force, but yeah, and I like the idea of a like a Marine Corps type supplementary force to the uh, to the normal security. Exactly. I mean, Especially there's only, you're there's going only so many red shirt guys you're going to lose. <laughs> Especially if you're going out to these incredibly hostile areas. Uh, you probably should have somebody with, uh, the, that. that's their specialty, is this yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and considering, SWAT team type. And considering the Enterprise situation, where it was like one lone ship has to go into the enemy's territory to try to get them to stop what they're doing, uh, I think you need all the firepower you can get. What was that called? The Expanse? That... Oh, The Expanse? Yeah, yeah that's, that's where they right. went to. Yeah. Where there was pockets where people would become inside out or something like that. I think they mentioned that, that uh, a Vulcan ship went in, and when it came out, everybody was inside, inside out. out so. Ah, that's great. But luckily that's... that didn't happen to Archer, because that would have just been a... That would have been a downer. ...horrible way to end the series. Exactly. Uh, when the Enterprise... or Oops, sorry. When Voyager first goes into the little dead field. Mm-hmm. If you look, you can see some Star Wars ships. Star Wars ships? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Right hey, here look is at the, uh, the uh, Imperial uh, shuttle. shuttle from yeah. Return of the Jedi. Yeah. And then uh, down here at the bottom, it looks like a nacelle from uh, a Y-Wing. Oh, that's a good point. I, didn't so, uh, I don't know. When I was uh, reading this, that really popped out. Like, what's an Imperial shuttle doing here? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Now, now, what's interesting about all the, the both those instances, they don't show you the entire thing. No, just a little hint. So if you look closely enough, uh, then you can spot it. But that's a good and, – and that's a very good catch on the Y-Wing because looking at that, that could be a lot of different things. But you're right. It does look like, like a Y-Wing's engine. Yeah. So I kept looking for like maybe a Galaxy Quest ship in here or something. That would have been a nice little nod. <laughs> 
So um, when the Borg um, first show up on the ship, they actually stun Torres when they go into engineering to yeah. steal all the, the chips. Right. Has that ever happened before, where they just stun somebody? Uh, Borg? Yeah. Um, so... I don't know. I mean, usually they're just throwing people around, right? Yeah. They just but knock I mean, you over This one, something. she actually gets shot. Oh, no, no, I take that back. No, well, no she actually, gets punched in the face. No, you're right. She just got knocked out of the way and, and got knocked out. Never mind. I thought they stunned her. Yeah, but didn't they, when they, on uh, Best of Both Worlds, when they came on the bridge to grab Picard, I know they knocked Riker out of the way. So they just knocked, and I guess they, they yeah, knocked Worf out of the way, too. Yeah. No, you're right. That Never mind. So uh, I thought it was a little disappointing in that both of these issues, the first two Voyager comics that Wildstorm did, they, they kind of have similar storylines. They're both getting caught by some giant ship. They have to beam somebody over to disengage the sure. tractor beam. Sure. Uh, I mean, I mean, and, 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 and you know. There, there, it, are, it, there are similarities. It, it's a science But it's well executed. No, I, I thought both stories were really good. Uh, I did know how this one was going to end because obviously I played the game before. But <laughs> um, uh, any other comments? You're not really reading your notes. I guess you're talked out. <laughs> no, well, you really didn't have that many notes. Um, uh, I already mentioned. I actually, I mentioned some of my comments as I was reading the story, as I tend to do, rather than sticking sticking to the program. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it seemed pretty obvious it was a simulation at the beginning. Um, things were getting real nasty too quickly, and um, the artwork again is really good. Um, and really, uh, the hero gets vindicated in the end. Yep, for for not uh, killing his friends. Exactly. Which which Tuvok says is like the Kobayashi Maru. That, that simulator was supposed to be their version of the Kobayashi Maru, which is there's no winning. But if you didn't care about your crew members. Killing them is a way of winning, so I don't know what he meant by that. He was like, there is no win. You know, this is our Kubuashi Maru. Yeah. But, I mean, if he didn't care that Forrester was still there, he could have shot him and, and won that simulator, I would think, unless there was something even more worse that would happen next. Uh, I don't know. I just but didn't, but he, I didn't understand he, he that. He knew it was a simulator, so it's, like, it's not like it's real. Well, I mean, So, in the simulation situation, it's like, <laughs> waste him. It's like, come on! It's just bit. It's just holographic photons. Right. There's a there's a novel called the Kobayashi Maru, which yeah. was uh, written years ago, and uh, in it, it was uh, basically all the command uh, staff of the Enterprise are kind of talking about how they handled sure. the Kobayashi Maru. All trapped on a shuttle. Right. Oh, you you read it too? You gave it to me. Yeah. Okay. So, but I really liked how uh, you know, like uh, when Scotty was taking it, and he. You know, the, we need to go in there and save him. He's like, I just shoot him. <laughs> <laughs> and so he just starts shooting him, and then the, the Klingons start t- chasing him, and he's just, like, throwing, like, canisters of nuclear crap just out the back, just blowing the ships up. Yeah, and, yeah. And then, you know, when Sulu takes it, he he, uh, he doesn't even try to help him because he didn't want to val- uh, he didn't want to see if it was a trap or something, so he just kept going. So I, I like how, you know, they do stuff like this where it's like, you know, what, what would you do if what you were putting you it? What would you do? And one, you know it's a simulation. Yeah. Uh, well, like, like you said for this one. Yeah, I probably would have shot Forrester. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, when I played the game, I probably did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, last thing about I have is uh, when Forrester becomes a Borg, he still has his facial hair. Which, yeah, sure. Which wh- I can't remember how quick they get shaved once they become Borg, but uh, I-, I thought that was a little weird. I mean, otherwise, I guess you wouldn't know that it was him. Yeah, they, they wanted to make it very plain. So, anyways, I, I thought both of these were really good. Our first little foray into Wildstorm's run. So, uh, last little thing we want to talk about is these books, one came out in January and one came out in July of 2000. So, there's a lot of stuff going on that came out. So, I'm going to go through this really quick. In February, there was a two-part Next Generation novel series uh, called Gem World by John Vornholt. I've never read them, but... Uh, it's kind of odd that some of the characters that were introduced in that book have actually shown up in, in later books. So, again, it's a little, you know, Star Trek is not known for their continuity, especially when it goes into other media. So, yeah. you know, when you write a book, that book is basically, you know, you create a character Island. in there, that's where you, that's where Island you, of creativity. He starts and ends. But uh, they've actually brought in some of these people from Jim World into uh, other Star Trek com- uh, books. So I thought that was kind of cool. <coughs> All right, so we got the the Voyager comics. Uh, there was a Deep Space Nine novel series called Millennium, book one and two. Wildstorm was also publishing some Next Generation comics um, and uh, Deep Space Nine comics. There was a uh, Next Generation book called The Valiant, which I think you've read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never read that. Is that based on the <coughs> stint at the on the Stargazer and kind of the kickoff of that series by uh, Michael yeah. Jan Friedman? Yep. Is it, in, is it good? Uh, it was, uh, li- listen to the audiobook. Right. Oh, yeah. So I, I like I, it. I've never read any of the Valiant or the Stargazer stuff. Yeah. Well, it was interesting seeing uh, Picard as a, uh, you know, as an officer. No, he's not, not the not captain? As the, not the captain. Oh, he doesn't start off as the captain? Not the beginning. Oh, okay. So it's kind of how he becomes captain. Yes. Hmm. I might have to give that a look. Yeah. All right. The, uh, the other things that were going on was... Uh, the Star Trek, the original series, came out with a new comic, uh, not comic, but novel series called New Earth. Mm-hmm. And in it, it was kind of, uh, it takes place after the next, gener- or excuse me, it takes place after the motion picture, but before the Wrath of Khan. And it kind of kicks off what supposedly was Kirk's second five-year mission. Oh. So. Uh, new Earth? Yeah, it's mm-hmm. called New Earth. And basically what it is, is uh, the Enterprise is in charge of taking this uh, armada of civilian ships to a new planet called New Earth. And the first the first book is called Wagon Train to the Stars. Oh. Which was a what, nod to Gene. Yeah, that's what Gene Roddenberry kinda pitched Star Trek as. So yeah. I thought that was kinda cool. Uh, I haven't read them all. I've read the first one. Um, and it was pretty good. It was by Diane Carey. She writes a lot of Star Trek stuff. Alright, and then the last thing is um, William Shatner's sixth novel in the uh, in his uh, Shatnerverse, is what they call it. <laughs> <laughs> so his uh, sixth book came out in July called Preserver, which uh, was his uh, was the third part of the, his Mirror Universe trilogy, where they kind of take off of what uh, Kira says in the in the Deep Space Nine Mirror Universe, where she says. There was an Emperor Tiberius who took over everything. Right. So uh, William Shatner kind of took that line and kind of said, well, you know, if Kirk could somehow come into the future and live in our universe, then then he wrote away so that uh, Emperor Tiberius was put in like suspended animation mm-hmm. and in his universe, and then now he came back to, you know, he came back and he's taken over the universe again in the mirror universe. So hmm. it's actually not too bad. Um, 
once you know. I, I always wonder in those uh, Shatner verse novels how much is written by Bill. And how much is written by his uh, uh, ghostwriting partner? Yeah, uh, re, uh, Judith and Garfield Reeves. Uh, I don't remember what their last name is. But yeah, yeah. Huh. yeah those, those two uh, is a husband and wife team, and uh, they were uh, like story editor of Enterprise. Yeah. So there for the last two seasons, when they started kind of bringing Enterprise more into the mainstream continuity with having, you know. References to Khan and Data and all these other things. That was all they were doing. And, and the Remans and the Romulans. Because they were, they were trying to set up the whole Romulan-Earth war that was going to happen in, like, season five. Which, unfortunately, we never got to because it got canceled. But, uh, you know, they started seeding in, you know, bringing in the Romulans and the Remans. While also not letting the humans see the Romulans and Remans. So, uh, I really like that. And, unfortunately, uh, uh, unfortunately, it never happened. Yeah. So, anyways, that's it for this episode. Episode number eight. Next episode, we are going to go to the uh, next comic book publisher that started publishing comics uh, for Star Trek, IDW. So, we've chosen to read the miniseries Star Trek Spock Reflections, which uh, is a pretty good. came out right after the, the new movie came out, so it was kind of a, a nice little <coughs> nod to... Uh, Leonard Nimoy Spock, so kind of from Leonard Nimoy Spock when he was a boy up to when he's an old man like he is in the movie. So uh, we'll get into that next week, but it's, it's a pretty good miniseries. It's not the first miniseries uh, or Star Trek series that IDW did, but it's the first one we're going to start with. Yeah. Um, and then once we finish that, uh, we, will, uh, we have one other comic book publisher that uh, has published Star Trek uh, material, which we'll, we'll cover next week. So and then we'll have hit every publisher. We'll hit every publisher, um, and then we'll probably need to go back and hit some of the, the random series that maybe Marvel did and uh, DC did that don't necessarily weren't necessarily based on a, a TV series. So there was a Pike had his series, Nog had a series. Uh, Peter David's novel series New Frontier had its own series mm -hmm. so we'll try to hit some of those and then we'll go back to Gold Key and start uh, reading some more of those right maybe we'll work on our uh, order a bit. <laughs> well we gotta get to them eventually alright well that being said I hope everybody uh, enjoyed the show and uh, we'll talk to you next week later thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review all Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name stcomic second name book review see you next time on Star Trek comic book review Let's get the hell out of here.